Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting to you across North America and via our podcast, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from the home studio, locked down as ever. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement, in Toronto, Ontario, who does not yet have that fate, but I believe he will. David, how goes it? <laughs> yeah, not yet, not yet, but the... The hysteria about Omicron, or however you pronounce it, seems to be escalating. I mean, the Canadian government just announced that uh, if you're returning from anywhere from the, other than the U.S., you'll have to do a COVID test at the airport and quarantine until you get your results, which is probably, like, security-wise, a good approach in regards to ensuring that people are not sick. But my, my main... Uh, quaff with that is how long does that testing sit for right true so when i was in dc i got my test in 15 my result in 15 minutes when i if, if i do a test through like public health here i mean they say anywhere within 72 hours and so we're talking about like the legal version of quarantine so that's something where like if you get caught walking your dog before you get your test result you could get a huge fine that seems problematic to me. So I hope that whatever they do, it's it's very quick, the, the test result, um, like overnight. But I'm not optimistic. Well, I, you know what I'm optimistic about, David? <laughs> We've hit it. episode number 100 here <laughs> on Consumer Choice Radio. Cue the balloons. Woo! <laughs> uh, yes, we've made it. Uh, we are now December first week and we've been broadcasting our program every single week since early january 2021 all the way back to january 11th we're now 100 episodes not bad eh yeah i mean at first we were just two dudes shooting <laughs> shooting shooting the breeze shooting uh, the breeze indeed and it started out just uh, just us we we had that commitment to do one radio station Expanded it now to two syndicated. Our podcast is growing. We are podcasting 2.0 compliant. If you want to have a uh, a a sort of Bitcoin donation moment, mm-hmm. uh, which you are very free to do here on our hundredth episode, newpodcastapps.com. Mm-hmm. You can find out more about that. But David, I wanted to go through. Uh, we we have some great guests uh, for mm-hmm. this one hundredth uh, episode celebration that we'll preview in a bit. Mm-hmm. But real quick, some of your favorite moments uh, from the last, you know. <laughs> Geez, uh, two years. Uh, some of your favorite guest moments. Yeah. Um, what's your first one out the oh, gate? I think my first one out of the gate has probably got to be Fleming Rose because he's the only person we've we've interviewed who's on Al Qaeda's hit list. Okay, there you go. Give, give some background <laughs> though for the listeners just tuning yeah, in. Yeah, so the background is Fleming Rose was the editor of the Danish car- uh, when the Danish cartoons came out. So he was the editor of that paper, um, and so obviously he's had threats on his life. Um, previously, I had the pleasure of going to dinner with him once in, in Washington, D.C., and that required Ooh. a police escort. My tweet. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, police escort at all times, um, like to the restaurant, to the hotel, waiting outside of the hotel because the threat to him is so serious. So to have to talk to someone with that type of, uh, of lived experience that we'll never have, and I hope that we'll never have, um, is is always interesting. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Fleming Rose, definitely uh, someone to keep in mind. Um, mm-hmm. The book that he wrote, by the way, 
um, I believe it's the Silence of Tyranny. Tyranny, tyranny of Silence. Of silence. Yes. There you go. So that's that's actually presaged a lot of what we're currently living through. So uh, yes, definitely would recommend that. You can listen to that on our show notes, and I believe we have the YouTube video up. So you can just Google Consumer Choice Radio. Fleming Rose, we're there. Yep. Uh, for mine, I think one of I mean my early favorites is having Bjorn Lomborg on, yeah, political scientist and economist who came on to talk all things environment, and um, his stuff is always very pressing in the climate debate and should be read a lot more. And I think he provides just a great uh, sort of foil to the modern uh, green movement that is um, denying of the capabilities of things like everything related to nuclear power and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to trade-offs and, you know, actual good things that we should talk about in the climate debate. Yeah, yeah. Another good one, uh, especially in the context of us talking about inflation these days, if you go back and listen to Steve Forbes's interview, um, on multiple occasions, he rings the warning bells on inflation um, because of government policy and monetary policy. And I'm sure at the time, uh, anyone who was skeptical may have rolled their eyes at some of the things that he was saying. Um, but uh, he appears to be a modern day Nostradamus because <laughs> everything that he said is uh, coming to fruition, unfortunately. Forbes and Amis. That's a good one. And <laughs> I, we do have the. Uh, pleasure of being able to interview various elected officials. Um, there have mm-hmm. been a couple, um, sort of our, our favorites. Obviously, Representative Nancy Mace, uh, Congresswoman yep. from South Carolina. She's been in the headlines lately. She's going at it, uh, tete-a-tete with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene over her yep. kookiness. I want to get the hashtag in Mace we trust trending. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Actually, a challenge coin with that on there, too, would yeah, be really in nice. In Mace we trust. And I just also love that after she was spatting with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a certified lunatic, um, the reporters asked, so what do you have to say to her latest whatever? And she just gave like the perfect Southern uh, response where she's like, well, bless her heart. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, she used, another one she did is she, uh, <laughs> this is purely Twitter uh, humor, but she retweeted her with the emojis and it was like the bat, the, the poop, piece of poop and then yeah. the clown yeah <laughs> it's like a <laughs> uh, classic so she is one of the the great uh, politicians lawmakers that we've had on also uh-huh. jeff brandis a state senator yeah. down there in florida he's fought against uh things like v- vape flavor bans uh which is great uh mm-hmm. just a really interesting state legislator uh, you know, we've had many more from Canada on as well. Mm-hmm, I know that mm-hmm. we just had on uh, Nate. I guess I'll, yeah, you can mention those. Yeah, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, the Liberal Member of Parliament for Beaches, East York. Um, fantastic Member of Parliament, in my opinion. We've had Dan Alvis, uh, another gem. He's a conservative. Um, going back to Brandis, though, I got to I got to bring this back up. Oh, do it. He's just he. If I were to describe him in one sentence. He's just a guy who gets it. He just gets it. He just understands. He's a yeah, guy he, who you're at the bar, you got a drink, and he just gives you that slow nod. No words yeah. are necessary. Yeah, like that meme of the guy in the woods with the beard, and he just gives you the look, and he's like, yes. <laughs> yes, nodding the head. Yes. Yeah, uh, he's been yeah. great. Who else have we had on from, from Canada? Oh, um, from we Canada. We had on Pierre. Yeah. We did. Pierre Polyev, um, another, I mean, talk about another guy who talked about inflation early. Um, Most people thought he was a lunatic. And again, he's uh, being 
consistently proven right. I mean, even the Globe and Mail uh, hadn't had an article out the other day that says, well, if inflation keeps up, Pierre Polyev is right. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. no. What a shame. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's uh, it, it's interesting to see how that will develop. I mean, we've got a great Canadian guest on this week, um, president of uh, Village Brewery, uh, Brewery in Calgary. Uh, talking all things excise tax for non-alcoholic beer, which I'm still I still can't believe exists, uh, but it does. Um, yeah, that's a little teaser for what will be coming up after the break. Very cool. And then we also have uh, Alexandra Geyser from River Financial. She'll be talking to us about accelerating the adoption of Bitcoin, Bitcoin maxis versus altcoins, and what is the future of entrepreneurship and regulations when it comes to Bitcoin and the entire space. So both of those interviews coming up after the break. And uh, we put those videos up, as we always do, up on our website. And you can also see them on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. And uh, yeah, 100 episodes, David. I'm really excited. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we open it up? What's scratching your noggin here lately? Well, I want to give a round of applause, like a standing round of applause, for the World Tennis Association. Uh, and if you're listening and you're like, why does he want the World Tennis Association to have a round of applause? It's because they have announced that they will no longer host events in China um, because of the ongoing scandal uh, of Peng Shui, who is a Chinese uh, female tennis professional who mysteriously disappeared after alleging that a senior member of the Communist Party had sexually assaulted her. Um, and so kudos to the WTA for actually having a, the backbone that other professional sports leagues do not. Um, I hope that other professional sports leagues um, grow a backbone, and maybe this gives them the leverage to do it. Um, if, you have a, if, if you have a government that is disappearing star athletes for either criti criticizing the regime or uh, blowing the whistle on issues of sexual impropriety, it's probably best that you do not send any of your athletes there to compete. Um, so yeah, yeah, huge round of applause for them. Yeah, that's that's very good. And, and particularly when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party, that's something that we did cover very early on. I'm pretty sure we mentioned that in episode one or two of doing this and uh, the one that we did from from uh, Davos as well. I mean, man, this uh, this show has come from, from to you around the world. Uh, one quote that I'm remembering now, we we're talking about the CCP. It was probably the funniest line, David, that you gave, and I have a clip as well. Oh, yeah, let's see. Uh, I, I think so I know that, what it is. Well, I, I'll, play, I'll play it in post, but uh, this is with, uh, you called John Cena an absolute jellyfish because he gave this apology this apology tour about calling Taiwan its own country. And it turned yes. out to be an absolute jellyfish. <laughs> what a great moment for me. Uh, so actually, uh, going back to Nancy May, she was just in Taiwan. Um, oh, that's true. Yeah, she she's was getting been, criticized. She's been hitting those consumer champion points each and every yes. week. Yes. So she was uh, in Taiwan fighting the good fight, showing support for um, the fine people of Taiwan as they face increasing threats of uh, invasion from from uh, the Communist Party of China. So um, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to stick up for these people. So I'm glad that she's she is carrying the banner. 
She is, and I think with the future of the GOP, I believe she's definitely the future. She mm-hmm. represents a, a sort of Trump-less era mm-hmm. and uh, even had some snarky comments there about uh, MJT going down to uh, Florida to, to the get, principal's uh, office. <laughs> to, yeah, to, <laughs> the principal's office to get to to get the nod from Trump that uh, yeah. you know she could keep on going uh, through through her storm. But man, what a uh, what a great time to to have good people like that involved with our program. Um, you know, a hundred episodes. That's a lot of people. Uh, please do check out the YouTube guys because we put up all of our interviews there. Uh, subscribe to that, and if you like it, give a boost on that podcasting two point compliant yes. app. Yes. Uh, so yeah, David, we've got uh, two great interviews. Uh, we're heading with uh, alcohol regulations and cryptocurrency regulations. Um, you know, I, I think we've covered so many different political and policy topics on here. It's, I think it's a great learning program as well. So we're probably, mm-hmm. we should be in the education category. I believe we should. And speaking of education, well, we have a couple minutes here before we go to commercial. Um, we have a great guest coming on next week. Um, so there have been some pretty huge criminal cases going on in the U.S., the Rittenhouse trial, the Glenn Maxwell trial, the Arbery trial, the Juicy Smollett trial is, uh, I believe, is now underway. And so Juicy figured, Smollett. Juicy yes. Smollett, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think that translates to, in French to fraud, but I'm not sure. Um, so we're going to have a, a certified friend of the show repeat guest come back on to break those cases down for a long full-length interview um jerry buting for anyone who has watched making a murderer was stephen avery's defense attorney in his first trial one of them Uh, and so he will be joining us on next week's program to break down those cases talk about prosecute prosecutorial misconduct the integrity of the the jury um what these charges mean, how to make sense of them for folks who maybe don't follow these these cases um, as closely as like a legal reporter. So it's going to be a great episode. I encourage you all to tune in for that. All right. You guys tune in for next week. And uh, now we're going to break, but uh, we're listening to our interviews. Uh, first up, we'll have Jeff Popiel. He's going to tell us all about Canadian brewing and what COVID has done to the alcohol industry. After that, Alexandra Geyser from River. Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 in the Peel region of Ontario and on the Big Talker 106.7 in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, it is with great pleasure that I get to solo interview our guest, one of our guests for this week. He is the president of Village Brewery in Calgary, Alberta. Welcome to the show, Jeff Papio. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So. Uh, the pandemic, I mean, has impacted all industries. I think that's pretty much safe to say. But can you give our listeners a, a look behind the curtain as to what it's meant for the brewing industry? Sure. Uh, the, the the pandemic has been uh, um, devastating to all business. Um, one of the hardest hits is the hospitality business. Um, certainly, most breweries, 50% or more of their business is, is done by the hospitality uh, industry. So, you know, when your, when your customer base is completely, uh, you know, eliminated, uh, that has a big, big impact on, on your business, not only in the short term where, you know, it's a, it's a disruption of business, but 
um, oh my goodness, you know, the wake of destruction that's that's been left behind where we've actually seen um, and, and heard reports of up to 25% of the business space is closed down and 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 or or paused indefinitely uh shortages of labor etc all this affects um your revenue base and and your outlooks your forecasting for the future your your uh the number of people you employ etc it's added a massive amount of complexity to to our business and of course these are our business partners where um you know really we we work very very closely with these with our customers um it's 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 had a, a really really big effect on the brewing industry, and I mean in terms of labor beyond obvious. I mean, it's it's one of those things that I think a lot of people forget is the just the volume of beer that is consumed outside of the home, right? If they think big brewers, they think or any brewer, they think okay, a case of beer, put it in the fridge, but there's so much to it that's enjoyed at a bar, at a baseball game, at a hockey game. Like there's a whole another layer that I think people sometimes forget. And it's a, a very important point because obviously the hospitality industry is, I mean, scrambling to try and recover as best they can um, given the circumstances. Uh, on the brewing side for you guys, has, has there been any labor disruption because of this or have you guys been able to weather the storm? And I ask that because I know some other uh, industries and businesses where you require people to be in person. Um, you can't brew beer remotely. Um, <laughs> so I can only assume, but I'd love to know if, if that's had a, an impact on your day-to-day operations. It, it has for sure. Um, in many ways. So, so you're right. You need, you need brewers and production staff, packaging staff, um, to be there to actually manufacture uh, the beer. Um, there's the office and men, um, you know, folks in sales and marketing who, uh, you know, we can work from home. Uh, I think all businesses have done a degree of um, pause or disruption or downsizing um, through, you know, just based on your business, whatever, whatever worked best for you. Um, but for us, it's, it's, it's been difficult from a, a couple uh, standpoints. Um, some of the labor that we have in our, in our brewery, uh, like on our packaging line, et cetera, is it's hard to estimate what business is going to come and what you need them for. So even the complexity that, that the pandemic has added in there has, has caused disruption from, you know, if we can't guarantee work, perhaps some of those people would go and find work elsewhere. So, um, all the way down to supply chain, where this has been something that all, businesses have had to deal with the effect of it has ha, will creep into into our business in other ways uh labor shortages where um you know a bar or restaurant who who has that delay uh staff off or now can't find good staff to open up or is working with you know just the uncertainty of of restrictions causing fewer people to come into their bar and restaurant all of it uh has an effect on our business Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, I can only imagine the difficulty of like trying to, if you're talking about production, when do you make the call to increase production and on what indicators (laughs) (laughs) are the bars open? Yes, no kind of limited capacity. Could they shut down again? There's, there's just a lot of, a lot of uncertainty there. I, I don't, uh, I don't envy your, your position. Um, 
I do want to chat about something that really, really grinds my gears. Um, I recently wrote about this because I didn't, I didn't even know it existed. Um, and I know that you guys, beyond brewing traditional beer, you also brew non-alcoholic beer. I didn't know until just a few weeks ago that there is an excise tax on non-alcoholic beer. And as a brewer of non-alcoholic beer, why does an excise tax exist? Well, it, it, it's, it's almost hard to believe. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, it is, it is a product that is not a controlled sub- substance. It's sold in grocery stores. Miners can consume it. But yet we're taxed uh, on, on this particular product um, as if it were an alcohol. And um, uh, I don't really know the history of how this came to be. Uh, I think it was probably just a very small business base and because, uh, you know, breweries and, and alcohol companies um, were the genesis and the, the innovators in the non-alcoholic um, realm. Um, I think it's just sort of been uh, something that's been around for a while. But now that non-alcoholic beverage in general is a category that's um, growing just uh, immensely fast, just just absolutely incredibly um, it, it's it's starting to take more public notice and it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense that, um, you know, even in its most simple terms, uh, you know, it's an incongruent policy. This is a product that can be sold anywhere and served to anybody, but yet it's taxed as if it isn't. It doesn't yeah, make sense. Yeah. And it's it's so strange because I when I did some digging into this, I found out that non-alcoholic wine is not subject to an excise tax. So it's just a strange disparity where for some reason that I, I, I have yet to find someone who can either explain why or justify why it exists. Um, but you, you, you talked about it, the, the market growing. And that's an interesting one for me because I have tried some non-alcoholic beers in my research, we'll call it. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Some of them were actually quite good. And I, then I immediately was like, oh, I could see why someone would want to have the enjoyment of socializing with your buddies um, at a bar or at home, but not necessarily having the weight of the alcohol also come with it. And so who is driving some of this growth? Well, it's... Um... It's a super exciting category. You are right. It's growing. It's growing fast. In general, it's about uh, plus twenty six percent. But it's the it's the craft beer uh, mm-hmm. segment of non alc that's driving about twenty five percent of that growth. Um, this is a it's a consumer base that's young who's uh, health conscious. So we're it's in that you know nineteen to thirty four year olds. Uh, definitely, sort of twenty five to fifty year olds are still a big part of the base. But that younger consumer. Um, we believe is choosing non-alc for specific reasons. Taste is one of them. Uh, the quality of non-alcoholic beverages, particularly craft uh, non-alcoholic beer, has gone up and changed the game where people are trying it and then staying on it. Uh, there's a socialization aspect to it where uh, people want to make healthy choices uh, or healthier choices, uh, but they don't want to feel like they're not part of that, that socialization group. Um, uh, there's a regulation component to it, which is really interesting. So people want to control the, uh, uh, you know, alcohol blood levels, uh, uh, um, blood alcohol levels, excuse me, uh, 
And so perhaps they'll drink one alcohol beer and one non-alcoholic beer. And, um, you know, it's also a great for entertaining. It is a, it is a segment of, of beverage category that can appeal to a broad amount of people. There's they're low calorie, they're low sugar, uh, typically uh, low alcohol. It's an easy thing to buy for a group that you're entertaining. So, um, you know, really a different, um, um, the mechanics of why I think this category is growing is very different than I think has been there in the past, which I think has been largely around, well, if if you can't drink or don't choose to drink, that, you, you know, you're kind of on a one brand non-alcoholic beer category. <laughs> yeah, N- not to name brands, but we'll do it. I, I, <laughs> I think it was Odul's was always the, the beer in the grocery store that you would see as a little kid and you'd be like, wait a second, is that beer? And my mom, no, that's not, well, it is beer, but it's <laughs> not quite beer. Uh, that's right. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So on that, uh, on that excise tax front in any of your conversations, has anyone attempted to justify it? And I ask this because uh, I guess it was two episodes ago on this program. I brought it up to member of parliament, Nathaniel Erskine Smith, and he had no idea, and he immediately said, "Well, that's ridiculous. We should we should get rid of that." And that seems to be the common response whenever I talk to people about this. But I'm curious if if you've encountered anyone who has actually justified the excise tax, or maybe if they've made any arguments that that would be worth sharing. No, uh, and I, and I think David, it's it's actually an awareness thing. I, I I it's why I'm you know was really excited to talk to you today. It. It really seems as though this is just something that that hasn't been addressed yet, uh, but needs to be addressed. It is um, there's some, you know, outside of a, a getting rid of the uh, or aligning policy. I think that it it sort of creates a bit of a um, uneven playing field in a number of ways uh, from a competition standpoint. And and they're really I don't know they have a government that would really argue strongly against competition and sort of that free market. When, when the same consumer uh, is walking down the same grocery store aisle, uh, purchasing a Coca-Cola and a Pepsi or a craft juice or water or flavored water. Um, but one small segment of, of product within that non-alcoholic larger beverage category is being uh, burdened with a tax that, that, really is hard to justify it's it's it just seems like something that it's about time that thing you know we make a change to this it really feels like we've outgrown the uh um um whatever original rationale what might have been made for it and if we were to to uh convince the fine folks in ottawa to uh reevaluate this what do you think the impact would be either for you guys as, as a brewer in the space or the sector in Canada at large, what would the impact of, of getting rid of the excise tax be? Well, I mean, look, it, it, the, the, the excise tax rate is not a, a, a massive tax rate. So we're not talking about like a 50 or 60% uh, uh, rate of tax or something uh, you know, that you see like that. But at its core, I think there's just the principles behind it are, are really important. Most of the innovation that's coming in this category is coming from small businesses, uh, small breweries like Village Brewery, crafted, uh, handcrafted um, products um, who are trying different things and innovating, bringing new choice to the consumer, which is great for, for um, 
uh, for business or the grocery business. I think if the excise tax, um, you know, were eliminated, the amount of money that would be saved, um, you know, al- although not the a major component of our cost structure, uh, labor and uh, and quality ingredients are still a bigger component. But I think that you know things like innovation, uh, barrier to entry, uh, having new people, uh, new players come in and, and add new products. Uh, all of that stuff has an effect on uh, either the pricing that that consumers pay because prices uh, products can be. Uh, price lower. I think that there's more competition also drives a true market price for consumers, which is an important thing for us to keep keep in mind. And then choice, right? It's about innovation and 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 being able to not just be dominated by one or two major industrial uh, uh, manufacturers. I, I have to admit, I'm not sure if I've heard the phrase, the true market price used in that way, but I am going to steal it and I am going to use it frequently. <laughs> I think that is the best way to describe it. It's like, what is the actual price of the beer? Well, let's find out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, figure, let's find out what it is. And maybe yeah. it's a little lower. Maybe you could have some more competition between brewers. You could have more more companies enter the space, more product and, and consumer choice, which is our bread and butter um, on this radio show and with this organization. And so... Um, with that, Jeff, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. In, in the coming months, we can have a, a toast to this uh, excise tax being repealed. That Wouldn't that be great? I'd be buying. <laughs> and welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga, 960 AM out of the Toronto area. We've talked a little bit about cryptocurrencies, about Bitcoin, about some of the regulations that have been popping up, a lot of basically how consumers are going to be impacted by this. I thought it'd be great to bring on an expert who's dealing with this, who's slaying the dragons each and every single day. We're speaking with Alexandra Geyser. She's the Director of Regulatory Affairs at River Financial, a leading Bitcoin technology and financial services company. She previously worked at the U.S. Treasury Department and holds a degree in politics, philosophy, economics from the King's College and a JD from the University of Texas. Alexandra, thanks so much for coming on the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So easy first question. This is the softball one. Um, when did you kind of fall down the rabbit hole? And what was that like when you started learning about Bitcoin? Yes. Yeah, so I think as many of us uh, know, your Facebook wall lasts forever. And um, in the fall of 2011, a friend of mine from college posted a link to the Wikipedia page for Bitcoin and said, hey, you seem to like economics. What do you think of this? And I was sort of like, wow, I have no idea if it'll work and if it'll catch on, but if it does, it'll be amazing. Um, so kind of from that, I I was on a more liberal arts and law path. Um, I do not code. So I regret to say I was not I was not victimized by Mt. Gox, um, but kind of you know, followed it. And, um, and then when I was leaving the U.S. Treasury, um, the opportunity to work in Bitcoin came up and I absolutely jumped at the opportunity, thought it was great. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, that's a back in 2011. That's an old one. I thought I was I was good in 2012, but uh, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a, the same. Yeah, it's about the same. And of course, we all have um, you know the big dreams of how much we would have spent. But I mean, I remember the early days. 
the greatest utility was actually using Bitcoin and uh, transacting and sending back and forth. So I, I go back and look at my old wallets and I, I sweat a bit, but uh, <laughs> I learned, I've learned and that, that's great. All right. So I, ha- I have a couple of questions here. You know, we've had on in uh, probably the last several weeks, uh, <laughs> probably more um, cryptocurrency related people um, than than most people are used to on talk radio. But I think it, it is the perfect time. It's the perfect opportunity. And often we're speaking with people who are more involved in the DeFi space, decentralized finance. And I wanted to bring you on because you're, you're a bit more in this area of Bitcoin maximalism and really trying to intersect with everything that's happening trend-wise with uh, economics, with inflation, uh, with monetary policy. What is it that to you sort of Bitcoin provides to those people that would like to protect their wealth? Absolutely. I think a lot of people are appropriately nervous when they see inflation hitting you know, 5%. And that's that's alarming. It means the $100 in your bank account will only buy you $95 worth of stuff. Um, and so I think it's a real disservice to the average American who maybe doesn't have access to sophisticated financial services products. Um, you know, you might be more limited limited on your real estate investment or on what stocks you can buy. Um, and so a lot of times I think we think the only thing to hedge against inflation is buying physical gold, right? You're sort of the Ron Swanson, you've got piles of gold hidden in undisclosed locations. And that is impractical for a number of reasons. Um, physical gold is actually very difficult to uh, to purchase, uh, and then it's very difficult to store, right? So the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is it is optimally designed to be a currency and to be a long-term store of value. So unlike the US dollar, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin in existence. Uh, nobody can change that. So when you're thinking about, gee, what what can I do that can't get inflated away? Uh, what sort of commodity could I purchase that can't have a, a market flood when the price goes up. Bitcoin is really the only thing that fits that description and cannot come crashing through your second story because it's uh, very heavy like gold. So I think in terms of storage, uh, Bitcoin is clearly superior. And in terms of technology, you can certainly transact with someone much farther away, much faster if you have Bitcoin than if you have gold um, or even in some cases the US dollar. So tell us a little bit about uh, River Financial. And, and one thing I, I sort of, to contextualize it, there's often a lot of discussion for those who are just getting into Bitcoin, who might come from environmentally friendly circles, you know, who have come to it with the headlines about, you know, mining and the impact on various economies and electricity bills and all the rest. Uh, but, but sort of what River Financial is providing and what you guys are doing is both allowing people to purchase, as far as I understand, uh, but then also having these other options that would include access to mining. What is that like? Absolutely. So River was started in 2019 in San Francisco. I'm actually sitting in our Columbus office right now. We just opened it last week. Um, And we exist to accelerate the adoption of Bitcoin. So unlike a Coinbase or a Gemini, um, which I like to describe as being wide, you can trade a lot of different cryptos, but that's kind of all you can do. Uh, We're going deep. So 
we are on purpose Bitcoin only. And our view is that Bitcoin has some unique characteristics that make it really well suited to move into the financial services space. So we've started with a brokerage and custody service where you can buy and sell Bitcoin. You can also hold it with us. We are super OCD about security. So your Bitcoin will live in cold storage. It would be very, very hard for somebody to hack it or steal it. Um, and so if you are concerned that you will not be able to remember your passphrase and it will be you'll be down to one try and then your uh, millions of Bitcoin will, holdings will be lost forever, we sort of take that element out. Um, and then earlier this fall, we rolled out Bitcoin or um, river mining. So this also takes a lot of the technical aspects and a lot of the confusion out of Bitcoin mining. You need a specialized computer called an ASIC. It probably needs to join a mining pool. Uh, if you are somebody like me who did not go to school for anything related to math or science, you're just unlikely to have sort of the time or interest or technical capability to mine. Um, and that means you might be missing out on some uh, the ability to generate Bitcoin at a much lower rate. You're always going to have to pay a middleman to purchase it. Um, and it's, I think you lose something in, in kind of the magic of the network. You don't get to be part of the decentralized network that keeps the open ledger, that keeps the, um, that keeps Bitcoin secure. So what we've done is allowed customers to purchase a miner. It will live at our co-location facility and it will mine Bitcoin directly to your river account. So it takes, again, a lot of the difficulty kind of out of that equation. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Alexandra Geyser. She's the Director of Regulatory Affairs at River Financial. Talking all things Bitcoin and crypto. I just wanted to get a rise out of you for that one. Uh, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit because I think this is interesting. You know, a lot of people who get into uh, the world of digital cash, as Satoshi named it, or cryptocurrencies, often faces these different terms. There are a lot of different scams that have evolved from cryptos. Uh, there's the Bitcoin maxi space. So what is the kind of difference between Bitcoin maxis and the rest of kind of the crypto world? And uh, why do you think you fall where you do? Yeah, so I'd actually say um, everybody agrees, right? So Bitcoin maximalists or Bitcoin only people um, would tell you Bitcoin is optimized to be a currency. And the most enthusiastic DeFi bro who's super into Web 3.0 would also tell you like Bitcoin is so boring because it's optimized to be a currency, right? So we actually all agree on what Bitcoin is supposed to do. And it's something different from what Ether is designed to do. It's something different from what Dogecoin or Monero or Zcash are designed to do, right? And so to me, um, this is just like we have in uh, legacy financial services. A home mortgage and a 401k are designed to do different things. You would never talk about them as though they were all financial products that should be regulated the same way or optimized the same way. You wouldn't have team home mortgage and team uh, hedge fund, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. So I think where I fall is Bitcoin has some really exciting implications for the financial world and for consumers especially that's not to say ether is better or worse it's just different it's trying to do something different it's optimized for smart contracts that's great wish them the best of luck but 
in terms of a long-term investment and a permanent stored value, and I think the future of of exchange, uh, my money is on Bitcoin. Same, same, but different. Uh, so if I could pull from your uh, legal expertise, because uh, this is a big one, and you know what we've covered on our program in probably the last couple of months are, are some of the regulatory uh, burdens that are being created at state level throughout the United States, at the federal level. Um, there definitely there's a lot of shenanigans happening at the IMF and all these other institutions. But what are the kind of regulations that hold back innovative companies that are providing solutions in this space? I, I think there are a lot of people who just don't know exactly what's needed you know we have the image of of bitcoin beginning from people mining on their home computers and just sending transactions back and forth when they're in their living room Uh, but it's a totally different world today absolutely so i think one of the biggest myths is uh, something that gary gensler at the sec likes to say which is that bitcoin is in the it's the wild west out there it's totally unregulated i and that just could not be farther from the truth where uh we're extremely extremely regulated. We're regulated different ways by all 50 states plus DC and Puerto Rico. Uh, And then on top of that, you have sort of this ever evolving posturing from the various agencies and sub agencies at the federal level. So the CFTC, the SEC, various uh, bureaus of the Department of Treasury. And so what you have is actually similar to a lot of industries where you have a patchwork of regulations, some of which are contradictory, many of which overlap. And so here it's, um, you know, it's a lot of job security for me, unfortunately, as, as the director of regulatory affairs. But we're regulated state by state as a money transmitter. Uh, that is what Western Union does. Uh, if you think, gee, that doesn't sound a lot like Bitcoin. I'd probably agree with you, uh, but the the upside is there's at least a path to do that. Um, Unlike some of the other stuff, how do you get a bank charter if you're a crypto company? Some states like Wyoming are trying to explore that and create a pathway. Um, In the last administration, there was a little bit of movement on that from the OCC, but um, I I think that that uh, is probably on hold for now. So and there are a lot of different regulations just keeping up with those is obviously a barrier to entry for smaller companies like river um but then waiting for the space to evolve and knowing that whatever it is we've designed whatever we've done to work within the the boundaries as they exist could change at any moment and that's that is a significant area of risk for us now we've heard from a few uh, mayors, you know, who are kind of, in my opinion, pandering to the Bitcoin Twitter crowd, uh, that they're going to accept their salaries in Bitcoin. Um, mm-hmm. But are there, what are the best kind of jurisdictions that you've seen or, or political figures who you believe understand this? Because, you know, I, I'm in this world a bit, and I, I guess we kind of get saturated and, and we have this strange position in our mind that, of course, all these politicians get it, but there's got to be only a few people who actually understand this and the potentials of it. Are there any that come to mind or even any jurisdictions, uh, state level, that are doing this the right way? Yeah, so obviously, I think El Salvador is sort of leading the way on a, a big national experiment to use Bitcoin as legal tender. Here in the States, you have a couple of standouts. Um, so Senator Cynthia Lummis, 
uh, has been leading the charge for a long time. Um, Heather Perks, Hester Perks over at the SEC uh, published something on GitHub, which I think is perhaps like the gold standard of all time for any politician anywhere. But you're gaining a lot of traction. You've seen um, with the infrastructure bill having a big pay for on uh, supposedly uncollected taxes on cryptocurrency. A lot more senators got interested in the space. Um, Senator Ted Cruz has been doing a lot. You've seen a lot of movement out of both Austin and Miami, I think, um, in the way that we think of New York as the capital for traditional finance and San Francisco and Silicon Valley as the capital for tech. I think it's likely that Austin or Miami are going to become the capitals for Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. I love that. Yeah, I'd l let's hope for more. Um, maybe even see yeah. the the small towns that are doing it. I know there's there are a lot of farmer collectives in in Texas that are using a lot of uh, great Bitcoin protocols and apps and wallets. Uh, you know, kind of creating their own farmers market. Pleasure. We've been speaking with Alexandra Geyser of River Financial, River dot com. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining me and uh, nerding out here for a segment. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening. coming from somewhere, Mr. Club. The money's coming from somewhere. The money's coming from somewhere, Mr. Club. Yes. Uh, you've advocated for paid blood plasma clinics. Paid blood plasma clinics. Yes, I have. The money's coming from somewhere, Mr. Club. Money's coming from somewhere. I, I am tired of my radio stations playing Canadian music. Canadian music. I, I am tired of my radio stations playing Canadian music. The money's coming from somewhere. The money's coming from somewhere. Do I have to go down the list? Can you just tell me who's funding you? Because I don't. I have to tell you, Mr. Clement. I, I am tired of my radio stations playing Canadian music. Can you just tell me who's funding you? Because 
I can't find one in a thousand consumers who would rate those as consumer issues. The money's coming from somewhere, Mr. Club. I, I think that your statement there is false. They do exist. They do exist. The money's coming from somewhere. I don't think Canadians care about blood plasma. Paid blood plasma clinics. I, I am tired of my radio stations playing Canadian music. The money's coming from somewhere, Mr. Club. Yes. Can you just tell me who's funding you? They do exist. They do exist. I don't think Canadians care about blood plasma. I, I am tired of my radio stations playing Canadian music. Money's, money's coming, coming from, from somewhere, somewhere Mr. Club. Yes.